and welcome to Coffee and Catholics, a Catholic women's talk show podcast. I'm Stacy, one of your hosts, and with me I have... Hi, I'm Alicia. I'm Annie. And I'm Lauren. Hello, Coffee and Catholics crew. This is Stacy. I just wanted to come on before the episode starts and um, let you know that this episode is a little dated. Um, Alicia and I recorded this one almost a year ago when some of the other Coffee and Catholic studies couldn't join us, and um, we kind of saved it for a rainy day or just busy schedules, and um, we decided to go ahead and release it, and it was supposed to release two weeks ago, but um, I've there's been a lot of technical difficulties and things going on, so we appreciate your prayers and your patience with that. But um, if some of the comments in this episode are a little dated, you'll know why. We also recorded this one outside, so there's some background and ambient noises. We hope you enjoy. Hello, and welcome to Coffee and Catholics. This week we're going to be talking about the Eucharist. So Alicia and I were talking just a second ago, and we're and it's been an ongoing conversation because just here in the United States, yeah, we've done our whole Eucharistic revival. The um, U.S. Council of Catholic Bishops um, started the Eucharistic revival a couple of months ago. I want to say in June, um, and because what was the percentage? It's like 75% of Catholics? 70% of attending or Catholics that regularly attend Mass do not believe in the transubstantiation. So they do not believe that the host, the Eucharist, is actually Jesus' body, blood, soul, and divinity. They think that it's a symbol. So this hinge of our faith, like, I mean, really, when you, when you look at Catholicism compared to other Christian religions, the true presence in the Eucharist is really what sets us apart. I mean, I, there's other things too, but like at the heart of theology and practice, and there are other um, religions that have communion. There's other Christian religions that um, have communion services, but the Catholic belief in the true presence of Christ in the host and in the precious blood of the chalice is what sets us apart. So hearing these numbers has always kind of thrown me back a bit. I mean, I remember having these conversations with other um, Catholics growing up in like high school and things about whether or not it's a, these debates of whether or not it's a symbol or if it's if we really believe that Jesus is really there. But I think when we get down to the root of what makes us Catholic, uh, it really throws me back that Catholics who attend Mass on a regular basis, that 70% of them believe that it's just a symbol. It's an astonishing number. Yes. It really is. And so for anybody who's listening who are a part of that 70%, um, you don't think that it's, you don't believe that it's um, the real presence. Maybe you've never really thought about it much before. Um, it's not really been, you haven't been catechized in the way that like really know the reasons why we believe that or it just seems kind of far-fetched to you like you know how could that possibly be um 
hopefully our conversation will maybe keep you get you thinking about it a bit more. I think the what I would like out of this um, conversation between Stacy and I is to encourage our listeners to really open up your minds to it. So like be open minded to the idea that like because God is God, God can do anything because mm-hmm. Jesus is God. He can do absolutely anything. And if he wills it to be so, even if it's strange and many of the things that he wills are oftentimes strange to us. Um, that he can will this. And so, you know, hopefully we can kind of, you know, maybe give give some reasons why why we believe it, some of our own experiences, and then you can take that and you can look into it yourself because this is really, it's a fundamental teaching. Um, it's kind of the source and summit of our faith. It's the, the mass, is it the Eucharist that's the source, source and summit of our faith is what it's called, or the mass? <laughs> I mean, well, the mass is integrated. Well, uh, yeah, I mean, the, that's the Eucharist is the source yeah. and summit of the mass and, and the of mass. our faith. And of our faith, thank you. And so, yeah, and so it's, it's so incredibly important and also it's incredibly beautiful. So, so as many of our listeners know, or might know, if you've been listening to us for a while, I um, began agnostic and converted to Catholicism. And so prior to my conversion, I, I thought Jesus's last name was Christ. Like I thought his name was Jesus and then I didn't know his middle name and his last name was Christ. So I found out when I started hearing people call him the Christ, I was like, Christians just have a weird way of saying names. Like they have a weird syntax. And so, um, you know, like, so I didn't know really anything. I didn't know who really who this Jesus guy was. I didn't know. I had all the stereotypical ideas about Christianity in general and Catholicism specifically. And um, so when I started learning about the true presence in the Eucharist, it really threw me off because I'm like, as many people that I know who are non-Catholic, they're like, you eat a person like you're actually eating a body like that's cannibalism cannibal. right <laughs> yeah and so like <laughs> and so the idea of you know the eucharist is quite strange a strange one for me but as i've learned about it there are reasons to believe it within within the bible and then there are there's there's a lot of evidence for it obviously that points to why catholics believe what we believe about the eucharist and it actually being his body blood Yeah, so as I was learning about the reasons why Catholics teach the transubstantiation, learning the biblical roots of it, um, and then just over time growing in love with this act of love. Well, you mentioned, um, I'm going to go back a little bit, because when you're talking about other people who start telling you, well, that's cannibalism and that's weird and why would you do that the jewish people said that to jesus when he presented this teaching to them he said you have to partake of my body and my blood and they're like how can this be <laughs> and they left half of his over half his disciples left him we have to remember that you know when we think a lot of times when we say disciples people just think about the 12 apostles but jesus had numerous disciples because a disciple disciple the word disciple is a derivative from the latin discipuli which means student and so he had many students that followed him all these disciples were following him from place to place taking in his teaching trying to live the life he was um 
gearing them towards. And then he taught this lesson about you can't get into heaven unless you go through me by eating my my body and eating my blood. Mm -hmm. And they're like, whoa, that's cannibalism. Mm -hmm. Peace. Well, yeah. and I mean, and for the Jews, like, you know, oh. eating, was it drinking blood was a big no-no. Yeah, yeah. Because blood was kind of, like, seen as, like, a source of life. It still is. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah, it still is. And so, and so the idea of drinking somebody's blood and eating somebody's flesh was like not only like we we hear that today and we go oh gross mm. it was even more like on a religious spiritual level was a very distasteful and disturbing thing for them yes. so that's the reason why so many people left but then after so many of the disciples left and then jesus because because i remember having this conversation with a protestant friend of mine back in in high school maybe um in high school or a little bit after and I don't know that I was, uh, I think I was looking into the Catholic faith and I mentioned that to her that, you know, well, all of these disciples left and then he turned to his apostles and he said, are you going to leave me too? And I believe it was Peter who said, to whom should we go? Like there's, there's no one else who has the, the words of life. Right. And so he's basically saying, I have no idea what you're talking about here. I don't understand this. This is a hard teaching, mm -hmm. but you have proven yourself that you are the Messiah. And so I'm trusting you because you've proven yourself trustworthy to me. And so even he didn't understand. And I remember her telling me, well, this was a parable, right? But I didn't know what a parable was at the time. <laughs> and so I was just like, okay, but, <laughs> but it's not, Jesus wasn't telling a story here. This wasn't fiction. Mm -hmm. He allowed people to leave because he allows us to, he allows us to stay or go. He allows us to make the choice. He gives us the truth and he lets us make the decision. Mm -hmm. And so rather than, um, and I, I, I want to pull it up here. I don't know that I'll be able to, but um, I know it's uh, John chapter six is what we are, what we're referring to right now. But he, he doubles down, he doubles down. And so rather than being like, hold on everybody, like, this is, this is what I actually mean. It's, it's a symbol. He says, this is my body. This is my blood. Like, okay, so Jesus tells the, all of his disciples to, you know, eat his flesh and drink his blood, that he is the bread of life, your ancestors. And this is coming from John chapter 6 around verse 48. Um, your ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, yet they died. But here is the bread that comes down from heaven, which anyone may eat and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. And then the Jews began to argue sharply among themselves, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? And rather than saying, you don't understand, this is a symbol. Mm -hmm. He is saying, very truly, I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the son of man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Mm -hmm. And he goes on. And then many of the disciples desert him. And then he, he again, kind of triples down and tells his disciples, like, are you going to leave me too? Because remember, when he's telling parables, people oftentimes tell the meaning to his disciples, to his apostles. I apologize. But he didn't. He didn't go and say, well, this is a symbol for. Mm -hmm. He said, are you going to leave me too? Like, you either leave me, you either accept the teaching that I give you, or you can leave me. Those mm -hmm. are the two options. So it wasn't a parable. He wasn't telling a story. This, was a, this wasn't a story that he was telling. He was telling them, this is fact. 
And I've heard people say, and this is one thing I find really interesting. I was listening to somebody talk about this and um, they were asking, well, what would Jesus have had to say in order for you to believe that he was being literal? Like, what would he have had to say? Because say he said, very truly, I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the son of man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I will raise them up at the last day. What else would he have had to say? He literally said it. So what else would he have had to say for you to go, oh, okay, that's what he actually meant. This goes back to the whole um, C.S. Lewis question of, well, Jesus was either the real deal, a lunatic or a liar. Mm-hmm. And so he can't be all of them. Mm-hmm. He can only be one. And so I think that that in that story, some of the disciples decided this guy's crazy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and they were like, yeah. he's a lunatic. And, but then, you know, we have all these Christians around the world who, you know, take Jesus as the Savior, the real deal. But then they don't want to accept all of his teachings, which is... Uh, and I have had hard times with the teachings of the church. And I remember um, back in college... And this, well, this is going to go full circle right back to the Bible story you just told, you just um, talked about with us. I I was dating a Lutheran. Lutherans also uh, have communion and um, some sec, uh, parts of um, Lutheran churches believe in, they say they believe in true presence. Mm-hmm. And, um, so I was dating a Lutheran. Uh, I was engaged at the time to a Lutheran. Um, but you know, that didn't work out. <laughs> but, um, and, uh, so I was questioning, I'm, I'm also, um, I don't like the word liberal, but I guess I'm, I'm more open to some, some things than I guess some Catholics or what so you mean like politically or yes, liberal? politically. Yes. Oh, okay. And so, which I pretty sure has probably come through on this podcast <laughs> numerous times. <laughs> and so I consider, I would say that I'm more open to some things and, um, I, I was questioning our, our faith quite a bit. And I went to teach at a summer camp and I taught there for six years. And when I originally went there, we weren't allowed to really leave on Sundays. I mean, we were in charge of watching the kids. So like, you can't just leave kids unattended. I mean, as mm-hmm. a parent now, <laughs> I understand that even more than I did as a college student back then. Mm-hmm. But you can't leave your, the kids unattended. Um, several years into it, they um, made it where there was coverage enough for those who wanted to leave campus to go to church on Sundays could. But my first couple of years, we couldn't leave. And that was the first time I had this huge, like the, I couldn't have the Eucharist. Like it wasn't that I was choosing not to go to church or it wasn't that I was choosing to not to partake in the Eucharist. I, I couldn't go. And I had this huge draw and emptiness. Like I yearned to go to church. I yearned for the Eucharist. And that was the first time I really realized that I couldn't be anything else but Catholic. I've gotten more into scripture, especially with uh, Father Mike's Bible in the year. I've gotten a lot more into scripture the past two years than I have, but I'm not even sure I really even knew the Bible story, that John chapter six that you were just talking about. Um, 
before. Uh, I, I definitely didn't know at this time, but the exact words that came into my mind was, where else could I go? This is the only faith that has the true presence of Jesus in it. Mm-hmm. And so it's really interesting in my faith journey that that is the very question I asked, where else could I go? I, I have this deep desire to be with Jesus in the Eucharist and nobody else has that. So I can't, no matter what um, issues I have with uh, Catholic teaching or perceptions or whatever, I can't be anything else but Catholic. So either I have to keep just working on myself so I can see the realizations of the church and her teachings, or I, I don't know. There is no or. I just, the, that was what I came to in that realization in that, in that first summer where I couldn't partake in the Eucharist every Sunday. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, as I got older, and I really listened more to scripture and I heard that story. It kind of goes back to like, we were talking in some previous episodes about, you know, how God kind of works with us. And then all of a sudden things that we need pop up, you know, saints, scripture readings, also mm-hmm. like God puts those things that we need in, in front of us. And so that when I first really truly heard that I mean, what probably was not the first time I heard it. I mean, yeah, it's the yeah. first time you first actually time, heard yeah. it. Yeah, it's yeah. the first time I actually paid attention, I guess, mm-hmm. <laughs> or, or my ears were opened to what was being spoken. Um, it really hit that. That's those were my those were my words when I was going through this whole crisis of faith, whether or not I should stay Catholic or if I should follow my fiance and his. I, he was also struggling with the same kind of struggle of faith of whether or not he should stay Lutheran or become Catholic. And um, your a little side note, years down the line after we we're still pretty good. We're still good friends. Um, but uh, he did become Catholic. Not, not why we were dating, <laughs> but <laughs> years down the road. So, you know, planting seeds, planting seeds, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. put people in our life. And <laughs> yeah. Sometimes we don't interpret why we're in somebody's life the appropriate way or the right way at first, but eventually, you know. Mm-hmm. You know. Oh, yeah, for sure. So, well, and but, that, that brings to, like, because we, we mentioned the whole cannibalism idea, and I don't think we really addressed that. Because there are a lot of people who are like, oh, that's weird, obviously. Yeah. We talked about it a little bit. But the way that I've heard it explained, and I've explained it to others, is that it's not, he's not just a human being. Yes, Jesus was fully man, but he was fully God. Mm-hmm. And so when you have that transubstantiation, you have those accidents or the appearance and the material, like the physical material of that that bread that you're eating that um, that wafer that you're eating, but it's veil. That's a veil for what it actually becomes, and it is God's actual body. It's Jesus's actual body, but it's his body, blood, soul, and divinity. Mm-hmm. And so it's a way of him entering into us and actually touching us. Mm-hmm. It's quite a beautiful thing. It really is when you think about it. You know, cannibalism, you, you do it because you're hungry and you're starving or because there are certain, you know, tribes out there or whatever, cultures out there who find it acceptable. And they do these things or whatever, and it's a very much an animalistic type thing. When God, when Jesus made the Eucharist, when he 
instituted the Eucharist for us to consume. It was done out of love for us. That love, his grace transformed that bread into, I mean, essentially, you know, love embodied, like, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And so it's, that's, that's the thing for me is that it's just, it's such a, it's, it's a gift. It's this beautiful gift of love for us that God himself would give himself to us in physical form so that we could actually touch him and receive him, take him into ourselves. And so that he can transform us from the inside out. And I remember I, uh, it was a, a Facebook post, but I, I, there was a very surprising person who ended up like liking it. So I don't know really what he was thinking or whatever, who was a, who was a Protestant, like a Baptist um, that I know in front of mine. And I was basically saying that you know, like I was, I remember having a conversation with somebody a while ago and, you know, the mass lasts for an hour, hour, 15 minutes, depending on how long winded your priest is. And, and, hour and a half. Yeah, hour and a half. Well, it's the, the, the little saying about the first five minutes is for the people or for, or the first five minutes of your homily is for God. The next three minutes are for the people. The next 15 are for you. Oh, no. <laughs> I've never heard that one before. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I may or may not keep that in. <laughs> Sorry. That's funny. Never heard that. <laughs> oh, yeah. So, so, the, the, so yeah, it can last for a while. And I was telling her about how I bring my kids with me, and sometimes they can get squirrely and all that, as kids do, because they're expected to be well-behaved for an hour in a pew. And, like, you know, you get up and you stand up and you sit down and you get to sing and you get to do all these things, but it can be hard on a child. And she just thought that was just the meanest thing <laughs> that I would that I would expect my young children to be there because in her church, in her Protestant church, um, you know, like she heard her husband take their kids to the nursery and they do their service. And then like she'll go back and sit with the kids in the nursery and they have it on the TV and stuff and, and they'll do that. And so that the kids don't have to stay in there. And she just thinks that's nicer. But in this post, I was talking about how like, what if like, I know that you don't believe it. I know that there's a lot of people out there that don't believe that God is literally present there. But what if God was actually literally physically in the room with you? That Jesus himself was actually in the room with you. Would you keep your kids from that? Would you keep yourself from that? Or would you go, oh my gosh, I have to be there. I have to bring my kids here. And that is the beauty of the Eucharist. The beauty of the Mass is that we actually get to be there in the physical presence of God. That's amazing. People way back in 2000 years ago got to be there with God in the flesh. Mary got to carry God in the flesh in her womb. Like, oh my gosh. And we can still get the gift of being able to do that and going into adoration and being there before him and all of that and actually getting to touch him. And I think for somebody who hasn't thought about it that way, it still might be like a little squeamish. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but but it really is. The more that you learn about it, the more you learn about what the church, church that who is the safeguard of the teachings of Christ. But you learn more about what it teaches about the, about the Eucharist, and the more beautiful it becomes. Well, and even Jesus's whole life, even from his birth, pointed to this. I mean, he was born in Bethlehem which translates as the house of bread. When he's born, he's laid in a manger 
A manger is a feeding trough for animals. He's laid in a, a feeding trough. Huh. Never thought about it that food. way. food. <laughs> the minute he is in in this world as flesh, he, you know, like you said, he's inside of Mary. He's inside of a human. He is fully God and fully human, but he's inside this woman. And when he is, is born, he's in this town that's called the House of Bread, which we've already heard from the prophets. Is the, the Messiah will come from Bethlehem, which the House of Bread. And, you know, he's laid in this trough for animals to feed out of. And, you know, we, the animals are even more lowlier than us. And not that the animals were eating off Jesus, but you know what? But like yeah. the, 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 the creatures. Yes. The, yeah. God. We're, are lower than us, but he was humbled and put into this. Mm-hmm. And that kind of prefigured, it was kind of a yes. type for that. And so, yeah. and as he, you know, and as he's, you know, growing up, he gathers his disciples and he's, teaching you know he he has hard teachings all the way through to prepare them for the ultimate teaching this this that we are to partake in his body and his blood and he is to be the food uh, the bread of life and the food for the world mm-hmm. and from his birth to his death it's what he points towards is the eucharist this thanksgiving mm-hmm. for what god has given us he you know we give thanks to god because he sent us a savior, he fixes this wound that was put there from the fall of Adam and Eve and restores mm-hmm. our possibility to get to heaven through mm-hmm. his flesh and through his blood. Mm-hmm. And then he, and now, just as he dwelled in Mary, by going to communion, he dwells in us and we become living tabernacles. Ah, beautiful. Love it. <laughs> we become living houses of bread. We are little Bethlehems. Aw. That's beautiful. See, but, this is the beauty of the Eucharist. It's amazing. Well, and even talking about the the kind of typology, and if you don't know what typology means, it basically means that there are things in the Bible that prefigure the things that Christ fulfilled. Mm-hmm. Um so, for instance, talking about, you know, the bread of life, when the Israelites are in the desert and they're hungry and they're complaining to Moses saying, you know, you should have just left us in Egypt and, but you brought us out here to starve. And Moses, you know, he goes to God and says, God, you know, these people are grumbling against me and, you know, what are we to do and, you know, help us and all this. And he sends them the manna from heaven, right? And they're eating the bread from heaven, the bread, the bread from heaven. And that's what Jesus said. He is the bread of life. He's the bread from heaven. And so it's kind of a typology saying, look, they're eating this, this food that is, that is coming down from heaven. They're literally eating it. Well, he's also telling them, I've already fed you before. Where does it say that? Oh, by saying, no, saying I am the bread of life that comes down from yeah, heaven. Yeah, okay. I see, He's I see. going back and saying, I've already fed you before because he is truly God. Yeah. So he's already, mm-hmm. and God sent down the manna. Mm-hmm. 
Jesus is like saying, I've already done this through your ancestors. This is the way this now we're doing it this way Mm -hmm. to fulfill prophecy. Yeah. Okay. I see. Yeah, that's beautiful. And like, and then also not only the manna from heaven, but also you look at the Passover meal, that it was the spotless Mm -hmm. lamb that was prepared and people literally ate it. Like you had to consume it. Yes. And, um, and how that that was another typology for the Eucharist, that Jesus is the spotless lamb and that we are to consume him. I love like this whole like, you know, the Eucharist is like what the whole Bible is pointing towards. And I just, it, I mean, I get like people don't have like having struggles in faith and, mm-hmm. and um true presence and things like that i mean that's part of being human we're given you know we're supposed to question but we're also supposed to in our questioning be obedient Mm -hmm. so it's like i don't know so i get it but at the same time like how can you not see Mm -hmm. this but because it hasn't been revealed totally the set you know jesus meets us with god meets us where we're at yeah so talking about when the the institution of the eucharist at the last supper the words that Jesus spoke were not the words that were supposed to be said during the Passover meal. So what Jesus said at the Last Supper with the disciples was not the usual thing that people said at the, the Passover meal. At the Seder meal. At the yeah. Seder meal, mm-hmm. yes. And so I've, I've never, when I first heard this, I was like, okay, that's just what he said. And then the disciples heard it. But if you were if you were his apostles at the time and you have done the Passover meal every year. The Haggadah is very specific. Yeah. You go through a whole list of prayers and they're in the same order every yeah. year. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And so when he instead, he inserts his own things and says, take, eat. This is my body of the bread and of the cup. Drink of it. All of you for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Mm-hmm. And Game so he didn't changer. say so during that time, he didn't say this represents my body. This represents my blood. He said this is again. What would he have he had, had to say <laughs> for you to believe that this is what he was actually meaning? And if you were an apostle in that room at the time, would your mind not have gone back to after he fed those five thousand? And all of those people left, all of his disciples, so many of so many of his disciples left. And he doubled down before they before they actually left. And then he told you to your face, like basically, this is the teaching. You know, you, there, there's the door. If you mm-hmm. want to leave, you can leave. But otherwise, this is my teaching. Yeah. So would you not have been like, wow, he's actually being real here. This is what he is saying. This is not a symbol. Mm-hmm. at all and so i find that for me that's that's a big clue a big red neon sign saying jesus is saying he's already said it once he said to all of those people double down on it triple down to you to your face and then at the last supper he interrupts the entire you prayer. know traditional yeah. prayer to say hey guys this is my body this is my blood eat of it he totally it. changes the rules he does yeah, yeah absolutely because he takes the old covenant, the old promise of God, and makes it new. He fulfills it mm-hmm. in himself. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. And I just... So we've we talked about biblical, and I know that there's probably so much more. Oh, yes. Those, the, those yeah. are kind of the ones that I can think of. There, the there's of some really good books, too, if you want to dive. Um, one of my favorites is uh, The Jewish Roots in the Eucharist. But I want to say it's by Dr... 
Shree, Robert Shree. I'm going to have to look it up and I'll say it again the right way. <laughs> Let's see. Well, and while she's Jesus. looking that up, another one that I've read once and I'm starting to read again is Seven Secrets of the Eucharist by Vinnie Flynn. Um, it's an excellent book. Um, I, I, again, I haven't, I haven't read it in a couple of years, but I remember it was wonderful and I've started reading it again and it's wonderful again. Oh, okay, no. Shreed writes other stuff, but not this one. All right, so um, Jesus and the Jewish Roots of the Eucharist, Unlocking the Secrets of the Last Supper by Bryant J. Petrie. I hope I said your name right if you're ever listening to us. But um, it really goes through how the Eucharist goes back and fulfills these promises of the Old Testament and these Jewish, these promises that God made to the Jewish people and how Jesus fulfills those. It's beautiful. Mm -hmm. And it's just what we're talking about, but, you know, more, maybe a little bit more scholarly than just <laughs> chatting it up about it. Yeah. Well, because, and that's one thing that I love about scripture is that like, it, and this is something that Dr. Scott Hahn, mm -hmm. I've heard him say, and just about every speech I've ever heard him, I've heard from him because uh, he's very scripturally based. Um, is that the old, the new is contained in the old yes. and the old is fulfilled in the new. Yes. And how in so many ways that's literal. Like, I mean, for instance, you know, you see the, the Israelites and they're led by Moses through, is it the red, I believe it's the Red Sea yeah. and the waters part and they actually go through the sea and it's a typology for baptism mm -hmm. that they, I know they didn't touch the water, but they went through it. And then when Jesus was baptized, he didn't have to be baptized. He didn't have original sin on his soul. Of course not. And so, but he did it in order to sanctify this, this um, sacrament that was prefigured in the Old Testament through not only that, um, you know, walking through the Red Sea, but in many other things as well. And it was literally done in the water. And so there's a lot of those literals, those things that, you know, people did back in the Old Testament that Jesus fulfilled in the new, and it was a very literal thing. Mm -hmm. There's still a lot of um, Jewish purification practices that very much, like if you get to the root of why these purification processes are happening that involve water and cleansing, a lot of that is seen and baptism and it's just so beautiful how um god prepares us and I, I, and we've, like i we've said we've talked about in several podcasts lately about how god puts these things in our lives and then it prepares us for the next thing mm -hmm. and so god gave these purification practices and he gave the manna and he gave the, you know, all these things that helped. And, you know, they have their Passover meals that eventually turned into the Last Supper and this beautiful gift of the Eucharist that Jesus gives us. All these things were to prepare us for the next thing. Mm -hmm. And um, it's just so beautiful. Yeah. And I mean, that's how salvation history is. Yes. But that's how salvation history is, is that he was preparing the Israelites for the coming of the Messiah. And it took decades, I mean, it took centuries and it took generations to do so because we are so hard apart. And in so many ways, like in, in some ways, there has been spiritual growth from mm -hmm. the Israelites to the modern day church. But in so 
so many ways. <laughs> we are exactly like yeah. the Israelites and how hard-hearted we are and how stubborn and all of that we are. I think I made the comment to my husband probably about last year, like, they're still fighting about the same thing. <laughs> like, this is still an issue. And he's like, yep. I'm like, my goodness, grief. Which then, like, you know, then, you know, kind of makes me think again, like, why we waste our time on such silly things? Like, God, like, gives us these things. And why are we fighting about stuff, mm-hmm. the things that... I think people have a hard time, including myself, I have a hard time letting go of our own idea of how things ought to be or what makes sense to us. I was just so saying that that particular comment had to do with, gotcha, with gotcha. that one. So, yeah. but it's just, it, I just find it so interesting how like people don't let, like, I mean, that was Abraham. So it predated Jesus. Like this is like thousand, you know, not, you know, five thousand, six thousand years ago. And we're still fighting the same fights. It's like, Come on, people. Let some things go. Like, and, you know, and I see my children and they fight over some stuff. I'm like, really? Do we need to be having this fight? I don't know. But it's, it's just interesting how if we just were in the moment and we listen to what God is saying to us through the Eucharist. And I think we would see how important it is. And mm-hmm. it's not just a piece of bread that some monks made or some nuns made that the church bought to put place in your hand or on your tongue mm-hmm. that it has purpose and it has meaning and it is when we present that wafer that bread that host at the altar it's transformed into something more mm-hmm. and so as we you know, in the presentation of the gifts, we're handing over this offering. And just like in the Jewish sacrifice, the, that when you gave your two turtle doves or your lamb or the, the priest turned that offering into something more, a promise to God, a prayer to God. But in this case, God gives us back himself. Mm-hmm. And then we receive him during the communion. Yeah. And, and yeah, the sacrifice of the mass. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I do want to just because it's popped into my head. And so I know this is some people's objection to the Eucharist. Um, so just made me think of it was um, that one of the objections to Catholicism in the Eucharist is that people will see it as, well, we are re-sacrificing Christ. No, no, absolutely not. Because that was a once for all sacrifice. It says it in scripture. Absolutely. 100%. We agree that there is no sacrificing Christ again on the cross. It is a representation of that sacrifice on the cross. And that's 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 what happens in the in the mass is a representation of that gift that was given to us in Christ. Mm-hmm. It's not necessarily a representation, but it's also not a re-sacrifice. It is because God doesn't work in time and space like we do. We are transformed to Calvary. It is this exact time of the crucifixion. It's not a representation. It is the crucifixion. We're not re-crucifying. Well, no, that wasn't. Yeah, oh, okay. that's. I'm not saying okay. that we are re-crucifying. That's all. No, I, that's no, what I was no saying. but I'm not saying it's not just rep- like it's not a representation. It is the exact. It is. It is the crucifixion. We are there on Calvary with I'll him. I'll have to look into some of that because from like everything that I've listened mm-hmm. to from the the different people like Catholic scholars that I listen to, they've always used the term representation. So I want to. I want to look more into that. Okay. That's interesting. Because I I don't. I I think that that can be because that's the, I think that's another thing is 
I think we've talked about vocabulary before too, because like representing something is like, I, I feel like would be like, here's a diagram of what happened. <laughs> you know, like <laughs> I'm representing to you the events of, of the second, but it's actually the, it is the crucifixion. We are on Calvary with Jesus at the transfiguration. But wouldn't that mean then that he, we are, it is happening again and again and again and again. Every it's time the we same go. moment. But God doesn't work in the same time and space as we do. Interesting. But we are there at that same moment. So it's not a re-crucifixion either. Yeah. We are there at Calvary. This is something I find that's interesting. I want Which, to look more into So this. I think this is why people get really confused. Because, I mean, I'm sure even people go in right now because you're like, well, isn't that a re I'm like, Yeah. Well, no. Because yeah. re-crucifying would be reliving that event like a Groundhog Day. Mm. Like it's the same. Like it's re-going over and over we're not re-going over and over and over the crucifixion we are present at the crucifixion hmm. yeah so so, yeah. so how's as we said in the beginning that uh -huh. we encourage you to like after you listen to this to like go and research yourself i'm going to be researching this because i find that really interesting and i want to know how to answer these questions for people for myself and for other people and so we're you know, space courage. travelers Ooh. <laughs> i've always wanted to travel through space i have always wanted to when i was younger i was going to be the first person to go through a black hole when i got older because i was told that maybe you could travel through space mm. but then when i got older i found out that you'll just get ripped into like a bazillion pieces that's one thing and it killed my dream <laughs> killed my dream no <laughs> But okay, so so we've talked about the biblical roots of the Eucharist and um, you know kind of the, some of the beauty of it. Yeah. And in this this right here, like I just I want to bring this up just because we talk a lot about our own personal experiences and our lives with the things that we discuss. And um, I guess there, I've had two profound experiences with the Eucharist, and one of them was, and I've, I've again I've told this story before. So I'll try to not make it all long and drawn out and whatnot. But um, before I was going to convert to Catholicism, I started, like, I, I was a person who was very, I was scared of commitment. Like, I was very intellectual in that I wanted to understand intellectually what was going on. My heart wasn't really into, into what I was, my, into the conversion that I was a part of. It was more of an intellectual kind of type of conversion. But I was still deathly afraid of commitment. And I doubted absolutely everything all the time. I was very skeptical. And so I started having kind of like this crisis a couple months before um, I was to be coming into, the, into the, the church. And I started doubting that Jesus was even a real person. And I didn't know really to look up the historical, you know, documentation that shows that he was literally an actual person. Atheists, atheist, um, you know, archaeologists and scholars will tell you that he actually did exist. The debate is whether yes. or not he was actually God. And yeah. He's miracles. either a lunatic, the real exactly. deal, or a liar. Exactly. Yeah. So I didn't know to look this up. So I was just questioning his existence, his divinity, all, all of these things, whether or not God himself existed, not even just necessarily the, you know, the Trinity, but this idea of a God. And so I, I wanted to convert, but I also wanted to know the truth. Like that was what I was really after was the truth. And so I spent a long time with it, you know, debating it in the car rides and stuff. And then finally decided to go to adoration. And I sat down in adoration and told God, if you are, if you are God, Jesus right here in the Eucharist, like if you are actually Jesus, if there is actually a God, I need to actually know. Otherwise I'm out. 
and I'm bailing and I'm not going to do this anymore. Like, I'm not going to have a conversion and I'm going to be, you know, agnostic, maybe atheist, quite possibly, you know, for the rest of my life. Mm -hmm. That's where I was at. And so prayed, sat down, very creaky church. I, I was very still stuck in very much like physical like the physical kind of world around me. And, and I had still had a very much an attachment to that. So as I'm, and I didn't know what it meant to really hear God. And so as I'm hearing the creaks and the wind blowing and stuff, I'm like, oh, is that you, God? Is that like an answer? And I have to decode it somehow. And I kept doing this. And it was me and one other woman in the church. She was back there crocheting, I think, but uh, having her hour with the Lord, just crocheting. <laughs> and nobody else was in there. And there was holy a little, crocheting. Yeah, holy crocheting. <laughs> And, and there was a little hallway with like a little, you know, kind of, it went off to the, to the right where the bathroom was. It didn't go very deep. There's like a little bookshelf back there. And I'm sitting there and I heard a man's voice and he said, look at me. And I looked around the church or the chapel and I didn't, you know, I looked around. There was only that one woman. I knew it was a man's voice. I was like, well, that was strange. There must be somebody in the bathroom or down the hallway or something. And I can't see them. That is the logical thing to consider. So I went back, God, oh, talk to me. Come on. Like, tell me that you're actually here. Like, come on. And I heard it again, the exact same voice. And he said, look at me. And I noted that the voice didn't come, seemed to come from the hallway but it didn't come up by the Eucharist. It was in between and it was above me, but it was directed at me. Like somehow I just knew that it was, he was talking to me. And I looked around again and I was like, well, still possible that it's, you know, echoing or something and, and stuff. But I started getting suspicious. And then I sat there again, asking God to talk to me. Cause come on, like, you've got to actually speak to me here. Otherwise I'm not going to believe you. <laughs> and I heard it a third time. Look at me. And I looked up the Eucharist and I have a thing where I, if I'm looking at somebody, attention is put on me, my eyes will start burning and I can't hold them open. And I look really weird. Like I look like I'm stroking or I don't know what I'm doing. Like I look really weird, but like <laughs> I felt that I looked at the Eucharist and my eyes just started burning and watering. And I felt this feeling from my feet up and it felt like I was just filling up. Like is the only way I could describe it. Went to the top of my head and I had to look away from the Eucharist. I couldn't look at it anymore. And I didn't know what the heck just happened. <laughs> and so I just like knelt down. I was like, thank you, God. I'm like, the sign of the cross. I'm out of here. And in between there and the car, I was like, you know, I have to make a decision here. Like I, I went outside. The world was still exactly the same way that it was. There was no big miraculous change like I would expect it to be because, again, I was very attached to that physical evidence. And so I get in my car and between there and the road, because it's kind of a long driveway, wrong parking lot. I decided either I had all of a sudden started hearing voices in my head and I never had before. I was just making stuff up or it was the real deal. Kind of those three options uh -huh. that we've been talking about. And I was like, no, like, I'm not making this up. I know what I heard. Like it was three times very distinctly. I know what I heard. So I'm not making this up. Number two, have I started hearing voices all of a sudden? And like now maybe I'm experiencing schizophrenia. Like I've never had any hint of anything like that and since then you know I know I didn't know it at the time but I've never had any experience like that again I I knew that I wasn't mentally ill in that way and so the only logical option left as illogical as it seemed was that this was the real deal and this was it and so I was like okay well either his doubts are still going through my head and I'm like yeah but really 
I had to make the choice. Like, this is it. I, either I choose to believe it. I asked for it. Do I choose to believe it or do I walk away from it? And in that moment, I chose it. And so I realized it doesn't have any bearing on anybody else who's listening because, you know, my experience was my experience and it was very personal to me. But that was, for me, it was very much like I had heard the reasons why and I still doubted. But God, just like the doubting Thomas, although I think there's some similarities and some differences there, I was kind of the female version of the doubting Thomas that he saw my doubting and he saw my weakness and he saw my frailty and he showed me mercy in a very miraculous way that, you know, I've, I've told people this story and they're like, oh my gosh, that's amazing. I wish I could have an experience like that. You're so lucky. And I'm like, no, like, yeah, I'm, I'm blessed. <laughs> I am so, like, well, not even, no, not so much terrifying, but more, I am incredibly blessed and I am so unbelievably grateful because without that, God knows yeah. I would not be Catholic today. And the best thing in my life wouldn't have happened. But I had to have that evidence. And God says, blessed are those who believe without seeing. And I had to see. I, I wasn't that person who could just have the faith to do it, who could have seen the other evidence around me. I had to have something that was so dramatic in my life that I could latch onto. Well, and your dramatic experience happened at adoration, which has to do with the Eucharist mm, and the yes. true presence of Jesus yes. right there in front of yes, you. Yes, he was telling me, this is me. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Well, and oh, you reminded me of something, if I may, and then I'll let you talk because I know I'm, I'm taking fine. up all the time. But um, <laughs> you're fine. It brings me back to another kind of biblical root of the Eucharist is that after Jesus's resurrection, I forget who the two apostles or disciples were who are walking the road to Emmaus. It's an uncle of one of the disciples and somebody else, but they're not like they're disciples, but they're not, they're not the, the apostles. apostles. Yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. So, but they've heard about the all these things Amy. that he said, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. And they're walking and he starts telling them about how, but he starts telling these, these men all of the typology of the Old Testament, how it was fulfilled by the Messiah. And they didn't recognize him at all. He's telling them, this is me. This was, this is how scripture and how all these things that happened in the past point to me and how I fulfilled them. They didn't see him until they got to the room. They set up the meal. And when Jesus consecrated, he blessed the meal. That's when they understood who he was. And then he was gone. Like, why did they not know him until he blessed the meal? Well, they even question themselves. They say, were our hearts not burning the whole time he was talking to mm -hmm. us? Like, did we not already feel his presence there? Exactly. But we doubted our feelings because surely he was dead. We, we saw him be crucified. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's, it's, a, you know, it's our human nature to have doubt. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I guess when I say this at the beginning that, I'm just like floored that 70% of people who say they're practicing Catholics and attend Mass don't believe in the true presence of the Eucharist. I mean, I guess it's really part of our human nature that we have doubt. We are doubting Thomases. We are these men that are like, I feel this. I feel you there, but I, you're not here. You're mm -hmm. not, you know. Jesus died 2,000 years ago. How could he be here now? I saw Jesus die on the cross. How can he be here talking to us? Mm -hmm. And until he really reveals himself to us, like he did to you, 
in and and sometimes the reveal is not as miraculous as yours like you know look at me or my story that i've told before about being in adoration and being angry about a miscarriage and i had just get you know let it all out finally in confession and 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 hearing that voice say well you know you're pregnant and i'm like what (laughs) yeah like where'd that voice come from and you're choking and this is just my inner voice talking to me and then i take a test the next day and i am pregnant and and so it's just kind of like you know our our the way jesus and god reveals himself to us is not always like that sometimes it's through a person or an action or just simple things in our lives simple everyday things jesus reveals himself to us every day we just have to be open to seeing it Mm -hmm. and we'll see it when we're ready that's the other thing too is we can't push we can't push ourselves we can work towards things but we'll be ready when we're supposed Mm -hmm. to be ready and which i you know i've been thinking a lot about when sister maria was on and she made her comment about that she doesn't think people really pass away until they're ready to be with jesus and i think it's the same thing here we're not ready to accept you know he asks us right there in scripture are you going to leave too sometimes we're not ready to accept it Mm -hmm. and um but maybe we can still work on it until we are Mm -hmm. yeah god just god knows the timing yeah. Well, and I will say just one last thing about that, that scripture thing, because I was, I was trying to remember what it is that um, I had learned about it uh-huh. and about how Jesus blessed the, the bread and the, the, the disciples suddenly knew who he was and then he disappeared. Why did he disappear? And one of the commentaries that I listened to on this was that, well, he, he was present with them. He disappeared because he wasn't going to be in the flesh like that with him in his bodily form, like, you know, like any more after his, you know, ascension into heaven. Mm-hmm. They, he disappeared. He was still literally there with him because he consecrated the host mm-hmm. and they knew they, they, I mean, he knew that they, they were about to consume him and they were going to have him. And so, yeah. Um, I'm looking for, so I pulled up the catechism of the Catholic church after our, our, our little discussion a little bit ago. So I was trying to find something because I know it's in here, but of course, you know, looking up something in the catechism sometimes is like looking for a needle in a haystack. <laughs> well, I'm in the Eucharist section, but I wanted to see, but I will also say that we were wondering um, if the mass is the source of summit or the Eucharist, but it does say right here, that the Eucharist is source and summit of ecclesiastical life. Mm-hmm. So that clear, you know, for definitively clears that part <laughs> up. Um, I feel like my comment about physically being at Calvary is in here, which is why, mm-hmm, which is why. Like, if I can find it, then it ends the discussion right there. <laughs> okay, so the word represents is in here. But then also they put in parentheses, makes present. 
the sacrifice of the cross. Yeah, so, well, I think that's, so, yeah, so it represents it. So, yeah. but it's not just saying like this, but. So, I yeah, I just get really kind of, you know, I, I think this is where like, I don't know. It gets really hard when, when the vocabulary, English is, okay. <laughs> English sucks when coming up with vocabulary, by the way, <laughs> which is one reason why so many people are, you know, we get into these arguments about the new order of the mass and the old order of the mass, the Latin. And the, yeah. And so the Latin, when we translated the mass from Latin to English, a lot of things were mistranslated. And sometimes when we use certain words in English, it's not what it means in Latin. Well, and from what I understand too, there's not always a direct translation. Right. So there's there is, different options. And there isn't, but also um, sometimes the words that we use in English have multiple meanings too. So like mm -hmm. represents can be like, I'm going to re-show you what happened in this diagram right here. Mm -hmm. But also re presence means that you are put into that into, into that moment. I see what you're saying. Yeah, yeah. so it's so kind of what, like, what, so what part of the catechism so that we can kind of reference that This for people who is, look it up. okay, so 1366. So, okay. Um, it says the Eucharist is thus a sacrifice because it represents, makes present, the sacrifice of the cross because it it is its memorial and because it applies its fruit i feel like the catechism oftentimes though you uh -huh. need a translator for it <laughs> so then in 1367 the sacrifice of christ and the sacrifice of the eucharist are one single sacrifice yes so that's I see what you're saying. Yeah. So when we do the, so yeah. the Eucharist itself is at Calvary at the same time as Trace. Yeah. So it's not happening again. No, it's happening at the same time. Yes. Yeah. We're time travelers. <laughs> Quantum physics is a happening during mass. <laughs> science and religion should always go together. We should have an episode about science and religion yep. and how they don't enter. They don't uh, con contradict. Conflict. Yeah, they yeah. don't contradict each other. Oh, I love it. I love yeah. that subject. Yes. But anyways, so, so sorry. But <laughs> yes. Good? No, you're good. So the um, 1366, 1367, and uh, 1368 of the Catechism. Mm -hmm. um, and it probably continues on. Yeah, it continues on yeah. all through there. Um, but it's the sacrificial, blah, 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 the sacrificial memorial of Christ and of his body, the church. Mm -hmm. So that's, yeah. there's a whole bunch right in there. It talks about how we are taken back to mm -hmm. Calvary. Um, I'm paraphrasing, obviously, but mm -hmm. I'm, yeah. I'm not going to read this whole thing. It's yeah. long. Go read your stuff. <laughs> <laughs> the, the catechism as important as it is you wait for too long to fall asleep but well and i was I will also oh say, you know what father mike is doing a um ca catechism in the year next year Ooh. so we can 
tune into him next year when he's going through all of this and when he gets to this part i'm sure he'll have some very enlightening things father mike this is a challenge to you <laughs> to explain this very well and clearly for us i may or may not leave that <laughs> Well, there you go. There you go. I like it. I heard about that. I'm excited. Mm -hmm. Well, and I will say, too, because we're talking about, um, you know, people misunderstanding the Eucharist or whatever. But then there's also been. Poor catechesis. There's been an irreverence. And I think Mm -hmm. irreverence has led to the poor catechesis. It's led to the. um, Maybe maybe vice versa. I feel like maybe a poor catechism leads to irreverence. Yeah, because they don't know what they're not, yeah. they don't know what's there. There you go. So if you don't know what's there, how could you? Yeah, yeah exactly. Mm-hmm. And I was I was listening to you, and I don't know all the the historical ins and outs of all of this, but I know that um, at a certain point, maybe it was was it Vatican II, maybe they allowed a dispensation, or maybe it was earlier than that, they allowed mm-hmm. a dispensation in the U.S. because there there aren't dispensations everywhere, and from what I understand, at least in some countries, like receiving on the tongue is the rule that is what you're you ought to do but in the u.s they gave um, dispensation for receiving on the hand and i've heard tell of like reason why that might happen but i haven't looked into myself so i don't know for sure but like i i used to receive on the hand that's the way that i was shown how to receive um and it was done you know like you're supposed to do it in a certain way and cup your hands so that you do not drop the host and it's done in a very reverent way and so there's even songs there's communion songs about creating a throne a throne in your hand yeah 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 and so you know i think that if it's done with reverence with honest love for christ in the eucharist i think that you can do that and that's it is okay i personally prefer to receive on the tongue I can't remember exactly why I started receiving on the tongue. I think I listened to somebody talking about, I listened to a lot of podcasts and stuff about Catholicism and he was talking about how um, receiving when, when their dispensation was given, it kind of led to a further irreverence for Christ and a disbelief in Christ in the Eucharist um, because because it just wasn't as reverent as just receiving on your tongue because when you receive on your tongue, but, but receiving on the tongue is seen basically as a more reverent because you are receiving him just to take him into you and rather than putting him in your hands, which could be dirty, which could have, are going to go and touch these other things around you. Um, you know, it's, just, it's more of a reverent thing. And I remember when I used to receive on the hand, I had never wanted to show anybody but I don't know that this started off this way, but eventually it got to the point. I think maybe this is just the Holy Spirit working in me is that I would receive and then I would I, w- I wouldn't pick Christ up with my other hand and with my fingers with my other hand and put him in my mouth. I would just, you know, dip down or whatever and like, you know, take him from the palm of my hand and then I would lick my hand mm-hmm. because the residue. Yeah. You know, any tiny droplet of him that is his full, or not droplet, but any crumb is his full body, blood, and soul, and divinity. And, you know, you see the priests after they get done distributing the, mm-hmm. the Eucharist, and they dip their fingers in holy water. So to take the Eucharist by your hands, and then you just go driving, or you're just doing whatever else. And it's just, it's so, for me, I just can't, I can't stand the idea. Well, I watched, uh, you know, because I grew up always receiving in the hands and I watched a YouTube video of all things <laughs> about um, a guy talking about how bits of Jesus are left in your hand. And I was like, Oh, I never thought about that. Mm-hmm. That there's bits of Jesus 
just sitting in my hand as I go back and touch the pew and like I said, driving your car or, you know, whatever. And I was like, huh. So that was probably my point of going, not necessarily that I thought receiving the hand was less reverent, but I did start thinking about how like, I don't want to be like, I mean, this is Jesus. And, and I can see how if you don't know that that's Jesus, if you don't believe, like you just think it's a piece of bread, mm-hmm. how maybe that can lead to some less reverence or whatever. But, you know, I never you know thought about the, you know, in the sense of the pandemic, though, there have been some churches where the priests and some of the Eucharistic ministers are not comfortable giving on the tongue. Mm-hmm. So I've had to go back a couple times, like at my home parish, it's not a big deal, my my, our priests, you know, it's normal for him, but I've gone to other parishes and they are not mm-hmm. as comfortable. And so I've had to go back to receiving yeah. in the hands at some parishes. And so, but I have changed how I do that. Like I will take, you know, the Eucharist like I used to, but then I do like lick my hand afterwards because mm-hmm. I don't want to leave any of Jesus behind. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But, um, so I don't necessarily think that receiving the hand is less reverent or led to this less reverence. But if people don't know that that's Jesus, they're not thinking about it. Mm -hmm. I don't think that one is necessarily better than the other, but I think we have to think about like, well, Mm -hmm. if I do receive in the hand, am I going to lick my hand afterwards so that Jesus bits of Jesus aren't, you know, going all over the pew and my car and my hair or whatever. Well, see, that's that's why I think though that like, and I, I don't, well, like yeah. I said, like where I said in the very beginning, for yeah. anybody who does receive mm-hmm. on the hand, I don't judge it. Yeah. I don't, like, the church has given a dispensation. I yeah. refer to the authority of the church. Yeah. The church has allowed it. That is the church. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so I, 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 um, I defer. Yeah. But, but, but for me, that's why, just for me personally, I feel like the it's more reverent to receive on the tongue because it is an irreverent thing. Cause it, the, I think the reason why we think, Oh, we're, you know, touching all of these things after we touch the Eucharist and he was on our hands and it hasn't, you know, is because that's an ir- irreverent way to treat our Lord's body. Mm-hmm. And so that's the reason why. And so, like I said, you can, you can receive on your hand in a very reverent, I love you Christ kind of a way. Absolutely. I don't look down on that at all. I just, for me, I just find receiving on the tongue a more reverent way of doing it. And, and I will say it like, cause you were talking about like kind of what led for you, you into receiving on the tongue, mm-hmm. right? I think for me, and I actually don't remember the timeline, but I think probably a big, or at least like a catalyst. And I don't remember when I started receiving on the tongue versus this time, but I went to go receive, um, the precious blood and, I went like a goof, like I am. I went to go receive and it spilled out all over my shirt, oh, all yeah. over my pants, all over the floor. And I just like looked at the, the extraordinary minister and I was like, uh, and she was like, I don't know. <laughs> like, I don't know what to do. I'm like, She's like, just go, just go. I'm like, oh, okay. no. <laughs> never asked me what to do. And so I'm sitting here and praying. I'm like, oh my gosh. And so I realized like I have Jesus's blood on me. Mm. Oh, yeah. I can't just walk away. And so I went up to an extraordinary minister after after mass, asked him, okay, this is what happened. What do I do? And she was like, oh, well, I've never been asked this before. Let's find the priest. So we go to the back and tell him. And he was like, oh, okay, well, you know, go home, find something to wash your clothes in, 
do it multiple times and rinse that out on the water out on the ground the somewhere, yeah. like in the dirt. And so that's a very reverent way of dealing with our Lord. And well, so, that's how the um, linens for mass are mm-hmm. also. So if you ever wondered <laughs> what to do if you got Jesus's blood on you, mm-hmm. or uh, you know, this is how they the sacristans and things mm-hmm. clean the linens. Exactly. Yeah. Well, and I, it was kind of a, a bad on my part. I used a cooking pot. That I'm pretty sure I don't remember for sure, but I'm pretty sure I cooked in later on. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, God. But <laughs> I did that. But I, I remember I filled it up with water and I put my shirt and my pants in there. And I'm just, you know, rinsing them. And I'm like thinking about this. And at first, like I'm just doing it. And I'm like, okay, this is the proper way of doing it because I love our, I love my Lord. And and then it hit me. And I lifted up my hands and I looked at my hands. And I was like, I have Jesus' blood all over my hands. Like the blood that he shed on the cross, mm-hmm. that he was tortured and was drew out of him because he was scourged and he was beaten and he had crowns on it, like crown of thorns on his head. And he was up on the cross and that was all over my hands. And I just broke down in tears. It was a very intense moment for me because it was just, wow. And so I went and I poured it, poured the, the, the water out and the blood out, um, in the, the bushes next to my apartment, probably did it a couple more times and did that until I like felt that that was okay. But I think that's I think that's part of the reason why, um, you know, because when you receive the body, the, the the Eucharist and the wafer, the host, you receive his full Jesus's full body, blood, soul, and divinity. When you receive a droplet, a crumb of the Eucharist, a a droplet of the the wine of the blood, you receive his full body, blood, soul, and divinity. So that's why you don't necessarily have to receive both at communion. I think mm-hmm. it's a good thing, too, if you want to or whatever. It's a beautiful thing, but you don't have to because you receive his full. So when you receive, like, in the hand, and that was one thing for me when I received in the hand, and I had those tiny little, you know, microscopic crumbs on me. Mm-hmm. I had his full body, blood, soul, and divinity on my hands. Yes. What was I going to do with that? And I even felt like licking wasn't enough, <laughs> you know, for me. And so I was just like, this for me was just like the thing that I wanted to do. Um, I well, and, you know, I've also noticed uh, my family attends a small country church, but the same pastor also um, has a larger church um, near us. And so what I love about when we go there is he has the kneeler out, which I, I, t- I typically have my four-year-old in my arms and he's heavy and I can't. So at our little country church, there isn't a kneeler. Now there are lots of people who still kneel to receive the Eucharist because this is another thing that has um, started to come back because, you know, before we had the commun- communion rails and everybody kneeled and the priest went down the communion rail and now we all come up. But not only do I receive on the tongue, but if I have the option of kneeling where I can also get back up because the problem with at our country church, you still kneel, but it's on the direct ground. Now, mm-hmm. if I wasn't holding my four-year-old, yeah. I would probably still do that, but I'm not going to be able to get back up off that ground <laughs> holding my four-year-old. So I don't, yeah, our country church, <laughs> but at, at the other church, I can, the kneeler, I can support myself to get back up, even holding him. So like, oh, I will kneel there, 
And even at my um, in-laws parish, they have started to put a kneeler in the middle of the two rows going up to communion and um, for people who want to kneel to receive on the tongue. And so I've done, I've done that too there. So I've, you know, there's all these wonderful, beautiful ways of going up and receiving Jesus, but when we get down to it. Um, you know, there are some people who say there's a right way and wrong way. And, but like Alicia's pointed out, there's a dispensation. So they're all right. <laughs> so, um, there are, um, you know, you have to pick what, and Jesus is going to work with you where you're at. So you, you are, however you receive the Eucharist is how Jesus is wanting you at that time to receive. We have to know what we're receiving. If you aren't sure and you don't know, then this is a really good time to grow because if you're receiving Jesus and not knowing what he is, I am sure he's working within you because he is in you. You really should take some time to learn a little bit more about the Eucharist that you're going up to receive and what the church teaches about it. And um, continue to pray. Like I said, we've said several times, God's working with you where you're at. He'll make himself known to you when you're ready. But Well, and I think it's also important because Scripture points out, and I can't remember exactly where this is, so I don't even know what to Google on my phone right now um, to, to find the verse. But um, in Scripture, it talks about how if you can, you can eat yourself unto damnation in receiving the Eucharist, that, um, that if you receive unworthily, that's what it is. If you receive the Eucharist unworthily, then you can actually damn yourself to hell is what it's what it says and so um i think it is an incredibly important thing um that you know like you know, for instance we talk about how or the church talks about how you are not to receive you ought not receive um communion with a mortal sin on your soul it's not saying that the church isn't saying that because they just want to tell you what you can and cannot do and when you can and cannot receive the eucharist it's because scripture tells us that if we receive and we are not as worthy as we can be, if we don't have, if we are, if that mortal soul isn't absent from, or mortal sin, pardon me, isn't absent from our soul, that we can actually condemn ourselves to hell through that. It is a very serious thing. And so the church tells us that out of love, that we really need to receive, receive um, a confession before that. Um, what you were just talking about reminded me of a quote from Venerable Fulton Sheen. It is not wisdom that saves us. It is ignorance. It is, mm-hmm. it is only our ignorance of how good God is that excuses us from not being saints. Mm-hmm. One of those things is like, yes, maybe you aren't, you're not there yet. You don't believe that, that is the true presence. So, God is merciful. He works with you where you're at. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, but going up, knowing that you have a mortal sin on your soul or knowing that, um, you know what you're receiving and still not, I don't know. Yeah. Maybe you're going up apathetically. You know, you know, intellectually these truths that the church has taught, but you just, maybe just don't, you don't really, you're apathetic towards it. Maybe. Mm. But, um, so 
just not knowing isn't going to damn you to hell. <laughs> but, you know, because luckily God is merciful and he takes our ignorance into account. But we can't use our ignorance as an excuse to not dig d- deeper. So, yeah, so do do um, research. Um, we encourage you very much to research the biblical roots of the Eucharist, why the church teaches what it is that it teaches regarding the Eucharist and the Mass, and um, and really dive deep into that because when you, we can say from experience, I think, that when you know all of those things, it, the, the beauty of it is revealed, and it really is something that is life-changing, and it's... Um, can bring you in such a deeper, more intimate relationship with God than you've ever had before. And as always, thank you for joining us. Thanks. Thank you. Join us again in two weeks. Until then, may God bless you and may Mary accompany you. Coffee and Catholics is a proud partner of the Smart Catholics Podcast Network. Find new shows to love, meet like-minded Catholics, and join the community at smartcatholics.com. Yeah. Oh, that's beautiful. He who assists at the Mass lifts the cross of Christ out of the soil of Calvary and plants it in the center of his own heart. The greatest love story of all time is contained in a tiny white host. Walter Sheen's got some good ones. <laughs> I've been listening to him recently. Mm. He's really, really good. <laughs>